This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by another One Heat Minute production. It Came From The Deep. It Came From The Deep is the latest show from Maria Lewis, author and host of Josie and the Podcasts, and myself, Blake Howard. We are hosting a narrative podcast, an audio book of Maria's incredible book, It Came From The Deep, and an audio book after show where we take apart every chapter as it happens and break them all apart, break it down, inspirations, craft, uh, uh, everything about the sort of the town that it was based on and where it was based, which is the Gold Coast in Queensland of Australia where the story is set. Um, and we haven't yet, but we will definitely be diving in to some Murrish people there along the way. It is not in the One Hit Minute Productions feed, just the trailer is. So if you search for It Came From The Deep in any podcast app, you will find it. Have a listen if you love your mer friends, because mermen, they love to. We want every legal vote to be counted, and we want every illegal vote to whoa, be counted. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just think we have to be very clear. She's charging. Uh, the other side is welcoming fraud and welcoming illegal voting. Unless she has more details to back that up, I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. I want to make sure that maybe they do have something to back that up. But that's an explosive charge to make. That The other side is effectively rigging and cheating. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Two hours have passed in this movie, 120 minutes, and here we are. My goodness. Uh, it is now, it was going to be the end of this show on the 22nd of November. Um, due to some scheduling challenges, that is not the case. We're actually going to finish on the 29th, but we have an absolutely incredible lineup of guests for you. And just in the precursor of this minute in minute 119, a phrase, how many fucking sources do they think we have was said? And that is exactly... <laughs> how I feel 120 episodes of the show. How many fucking guests do you think we have? Well, we've got another one for you. And thankfully this person saved me like the sources attempt to save Woodward and Bernstein in this minute that we are looking at together. He is a twice Emmy nominated media maker. He is the co-host of the Uber Busters, who you would have heard on this great show back in episode 42. It feels like 155 years ago now. And um, we've aged so much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's also an associate producer at Sugar23, which is a company that shepherded projects, which I'll just name the big one, Spotlight. The Nick. Yeah. Dickinson. 13 Reasons Why. Maniac. The OA. Holy shit. And he's doing a whole bunch of podcast producing there. He's awesome. He's my friend, Liam Billingham, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show again. Dude. I wouldn't when you when you texted me and you were like, "Hey, let's go." Last night, I was like, "I need thirty minutes." My wife was like, "You're gonna go record a podcast now?" I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." Two I've complete had- ride or dies in a row. One of them is Liam I- Billingham. The second one is Jedediah Ayers. Jed, it's two a.m. at the time that I texted Jed last night. His time. He's drunk. He's in his underpants. He's watching a film and writing a blog. He said, "Give me five minutes." I said, "I actually mean tomorrow." He goes. Do you want a good podcast or a bad podcast, Blake? Are you going to record now? It's going to be a fire. Or tomorrow I said, please, I'll wait till you have pants and I will wait until you are sober. When you texted me, <laughs> I just got up and started to put my gear together. Like I was just like, <laughs> let me assemble it. And I like set it up in the back room. And I, like, I think my wife was watching TV 
and I like got halfway through it and then I got your text and he I was like, Oh, he doesn't mean now. I guess I'll <laughs> I guess I'll put this stuff away. I'm sorry. I, I no, I, it's cool. I, I'm the worst because I literally this is what I've spent COVID doing. A few people have gone, Oh, you've got like the nice studio set up now. Not many people see it because we don't do the video podcast, but I'm like, Yeah, like I had nothing else to do during COVID except set this studio up to look nice. So that's basically no, it's what a good I did. Move. It's it's to get it all set. I I, uh, I I wish I had the space. Maybe someday I'll be able to build out a studio in here with nice bottles of Johnny Walker and <laughs> Buffalo Trace in the background. Well, um, but yeah, no, I like that. It was it's it, the nice thing about podcasting is the elasticity of being like, oh, I can set up in three minutes. Oh, when and be good to we're, go. We're, it's so different from everything else. We're in an apartment, um, like a two better with my little daughter, like for a whole chunk of one heat minute, and a studio would miraculously appear in the evenings in the house for a recording and then before I went to bed would be completely packed up and put away and, yep. and, and, and disassembled so that at whatever time in the morning my daughter woke up, my wife was pregnant at the time with our, our little boy, like it would just completely go up and down and so uh, one of my prerequisites when we bought a place was I really want a space that a microphone can stay it's, permanently erected. <laughs> it could stay there. I need to do it. I um. I've recorded in every room. When we were in New York and I was face to face with George, which I don't recommend, um, <laughs> we were able to sit across the table from each other. But now, because he's in New York and I'm in LA, it's like I will be in whatever room I can be in. Yes. Dealing with a precarious internet connection because of American infrastructure <laughs> and uh, praying and hoping that we get through it. But it's better. I mean, as someone that's made theater and film and all these different things, it's better to be able to just be like, cool, I can, I could set this up in three minutes. Yeah. Drunk. Pants, no pants. Um, the, <laughs> pants, no pants. I, I, I've, and I've got a couple of microphones set up at this desk with the express perp for the express purpose of like having people over it so you can actually have a podcast where you're interacting with people, but it's just, it is not the way of 2020, yep. maybe the way in future years, but not the way right now. It's a bummer, right? You can't like get in a room with, with, there's so many amazing people we've talked to on this season where I'm like, okay, cool. It's nice to see your face re-represented digitally, <laughs> not in a human form. <laughs> And, but cool. And even Travis Woods, the great Travis Woods, who's out was our host of Increment Vice. You know, at the beginning of that series, uh, he and Kat Corbett were were in studio, like they're in studios using studios face to face with so many of them. And after that happened, we we had to shift to we had to shift to Zoom and Skype and whatever the heck anyone could record on. And it was like a completely different vibe. You know, the last studio set that Travis did, which is like this is the all time flex from him as a host on on this series. He he, he recorded a Ryan Johnson episode of Increment Vice in the studio where Neil Young made his first album. And I just was like, they're the most American things you could say to me and spit in my Sydney side of face right now, you son of a bitch. It's all he needed to be doing is wearing, <laughs> wearing cowboy boots to really like... I gotta, you know, because we've, we're we're in LA, but we can't see anybody. I got, I got, I was like hoping that I would bump into that guy at like the New Beverly yeah. and because of Twitter be like... I know you. Yeah, I've I, listened to your fucking <laughs> podcast, and he'd be like totally creeped out. Until, but that hasn't. We haven't had the chance to. I haven't had the chance to stalk all of my Twitter LA nerds. Oh, they'll all yet. be back at the new Bev as soon as the new Bev opens up. You only went one time before it shut down. Yeah, it's it's, it's such a bummer. It's it's um, you know, I th this is my other thing, Liam. It's like knowing that this show 
and especially increment vice for folks who didn't listen to like the plan with increment vice the end of the show was we travis and i were going to go to manhattan beach which is the sub in from gordita beach oh, and, and record live as the waves were crashing just on the beach maybe getting a little stone talking about increment vice and the show and that's not the way that it ended and just kiss and then just kiss and that's the <laughs> and then just kiss eats forget that we were recording this Put it out be there. Beautiful. <laughs> this would be really good. Uh, my the one movie I got to see at New Bev before it closed was a thirty-five millimeter print of High Plains Drifter. Wow, which is wow. like to see. Never seen it before. Wednesday screening, packed. Yeah, there was not an empty. And I was like, I found my people. Mm. I found my Absolutely. fucking people. Yeah. And eight days later. I had tickets for Jesse Outlaw Jesse James, and they oh. shut it down. I was oh. like, "No!" That I, anyway, I I yeah, that's that's an absolute. I know I, I I brought the mood down. I was just oh. t- you guys were talking about kissing, and it was well, really kissing, cute. And, and, now, and now there's no kissing when there's no Jesse James. <laughs> um, let's let's dive back into this movie. You're such a phenomenal fan of Spotlight. You're also a fan, obviously, a big fan of this movie as well. Um, people have heard you and George talk about it. Coming back at it, one of the things that you said to me when I said, oh, can you please do this? And you were so gracious to accept the the last minute invitation. But one thing that you did say was like, oh, thank you for this minute. Because I agree, the chaos of these scenes um, and you as a filmmaker and, and someone who's in production is like, the chaos and the production design flex of having this entire set as a playground and running in the different rooms and kind of occupying all the different spaces and showing like, Hey, you know, this back room that's over here that you probably Mm -hmm. didn't even give a rat's about. It is actually a completely made up kitchen and this is this and that's that. It's such a dynamic scene. It plays so beautifully. It's just, it's just all kinds of awesome. Totally. And uh, you know, I, so in, in, because we planned this so late and, you know, it was a sort of a last minute thing this Mm. afternoon, I was like, oh shit, I should probably watch my minute a couple (laughs) times. So I got, I, it's the movies on HBO max, which is really great. I didn't know it was on HBO max. So I pulled it up on there and I started like maybe two to three minutes before it started. And it's in the scene where they go to the guy's apartment and they're, they sort of, they sort of, you know, push him. And I haven't watched the movie from beginning to end since we did episode 42, 155 years ago (laughs) but i got to the scene that in question and i uh my chest my my like heart started to pound and i was like the reason that i texted you fuck man what a minute is because instantaneously without the context of the previous one minute you know almost two hours 158 i like was so in the movie yeah instantaneously like i felt everything that the movie's supposed to make me feel um and it's sort of a testament to pakula's outrageous camera choices and selections <laughs> and things that camera the shots the shot choices and the fact that the mo- the thing that sticks out to me is redford watching ben bradley is it ben mm. bradley it's ben yeah, yeah bradley walk out the door mm-hmm. watching him go and the way that that sets up the suspense of what's going to happen, the way it sets up, it sets up a stratified newsroom where it's like, these are the guys that leave at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever time it is. And like, it's such an analog world because they're on the phone. They've got 20 minutes till deadline. It's going to go to print. And there's so much suspense in walking, watching a guy walk across a newsroom <laughs> floor. 
and I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that that's like even a thing that you can really process unless you were an, of a certain age and sort of understand what that means. And like, certainly this movie is older than I am, but the feeling of like being so caught up in the suspense of it is really, it's, I mean, it, you've talked about this for 119 hours, so like, you know, <laughs> but it, it really gave me pause and made me go like, shit, man, this is real. This is real cinema. Like this is really just shots, cuts, and all the tension is generated in the in the in the simple back and forth of of Redford's eyes on Bradley as he walks across, and then cutting to Bernstein in the back. And I I just can't you know I can't get enough of Dustin Hoffman in this movie. He's just it's unreal. He he's unreal and is unreal. And whether you like, I think that one bit of like I don't know like extra sauce that we both and I think anyone who's even a raw newcomer to this movie carries into it is the legend of robards as bradley and mm-hmm. so the the shorthand is we know how powerful important bradley is but I, I i like you said even if you didn't the panic it's like a, a mixture of panic and disappointment and just like 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 the sun is setting mm-hmm. in redford's eyes like there's the story it's gone. Like this thing we've been waiting for, pushing for, striving for is walking out the door. And that's, I, I, I can't, I don't know what it is about him, but I think great performers have, they do have a gravity like, and, and it's not gravitas. It's like, but it, it, I actually think it is like a, a, a like an, a chemical reaction of like, you cannot take your eyes off of them. They, they imbalance mm-hmm. the movie and, and, and you've got to like kind of tilt the balance of the right offside of characters and the right amount of dialogue and the right amount of usage in the movie. And Robards is so perfectly cast and so huge as Bradley that him walking out, it's like the, it leaves the newsroom on a tilt um, for me. Well, so he it's, also he leaves the room and he says goodbye to everybody and he's the star of the show. Yeah. And like, He's so, I don't know what your first introduction to Jason Robards was, but for me, when I was 18, like right, so in the US, you know, you turn 18, you go to R-rated movies. The first R-rated movie I saw when I turned 18 was Magnolia. Yeah. Like I literally was like, this is the movie I'm going to see. <laughs> and I, like every dude under, who who like grew up, well, maybe I'm the only one that did this, but like watched Hard Eight after school every day when he was like 14 or 15 years old. That's how cool I am. Ladies, sorry, I'm Ladies. <laughs> sorry. Um, Robards, like in that movie, is so amazing because not only is he playing a dying patriarch, he is a dying patriarch. Yes. And if you watch, there's the DVD special, like the making of that they released. And he spends, there's an interview with him in bed talking about reading the script for the first time. And I've seen it a bunch of times. And it's like, he's sort of casual, whatever, but you can see he's ill. Like he's not well. He's not well. But he exudes this like crazy, there's that monologue he has in the film, which I can't really remember all that well, but it's like one of those things that, Paul Thomas, that movie is, I think, Paul Thomas Anderson's, like, ultimate flex. Like, he yeah. makes Boogie Nights, and then he's like, who wants my three-hour <laughs> valley set? Um, 
sad movie with that ends with fraud. And when I was like, yeah, 18, 19, that movie was a Bible for me. Yeah. But the thing that stands out in that movie is there's a moment where I forget who, what the camera is on, but Robards is talking about regret and he says something like the goddamn regret. And it's like (laughs) electricity. Yeah. And so to then go back and watch him in this movie where he's like kind of suave, but still old. He's one of those actors, you know, we're talking about Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune this season and like Takashi Shimura, who's an who's an incredible Japanese actor who always played 50, even when he was like 26. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in Robards from like 1970 on where you're like, yeah. how old is this guy? And he's like a fountain of like wisdom and a fountain of like smarts. And I think that he plays this delicate balance in this movie between being a hard-nosed journalist and something of like a celebrity in the journalist class. Yes. And I just think it's so, there's something so compelling in the way he flits between those two worlds. And he is the ultimate power broker in that newsroom. So to see him leave for Redford, you know, it's funny. I was trying to bring it to our larger constant conversations that we have, which is about, all the obsessive newsroom movies. So all the president's men, Zodiac, <laughs> Zodiac. and Spotlight. Spotlight. I kept trying to think back, what's the equivalent scene to this in those two movies? And where the, where there's the push, the pinch, the thing, the thing that needs to happen. And in Spotlight, I think it's when Michael Keaton goes to that guy's house on Christmas Eve and is yeah. like, I need you to verify this list. And I know that because as a, the kind of person I am, I watched Spotlight <laughs> like a week and a half ago. <laughs> but... um. I don't know what the equivalent in Zodiac is, but that tension that comes as a result of, in this case, two hours of watching cumulative information build up about who these people are, who they are in relation to each other, how they work together, what Bradley is. Bradley is a gatekeeper. He's a he's a journalist. He's a good journalist. He's a, a dynasty of journalism. And it's like watching... There's just something in, incredibly, what I think makes this such a cinematic movie, sorry I'm jumping around so much, is that that scene works because of the cumulative information that has led to the moment where Redford is like watching him go and watching his story, his year, the years of work walk out the, walk out the door. And it's because Pakula knows that a movie is shot plus another shot equals something and <laughs> yes. then you add in, it's like the accumulative detail of well, information fi- that can make someone walking across a room the most intense thing you've ever seen i just want to say i want to pose a the most fincher version of that which is mm. which is gyllenhaal in a basement they don't have basements in southern california sneaking into it and going did I just literally walk into this? Did I totally walk into right. death? And that moment is like, obviously gets out of there and it's relief, but that is a massive turning point of, you know, what's made crystal clear in the Zodiac book of like Grace in this investigation, which is that the Zodiac eventually had, he had like a, an overhead projector with an alphabet on it that he would trace his letters, which is why they look different to his handwriting. But it's like one of those yeah. moments where he's kind of accumulated these things and, and, and that someone's upstairs. Like, I feel like that's the moment in Zodiac, but the, the I think you're it's, right. It's, it's the, the case is life or death. Cause with, with Keaton's character, when he goes over there um, uh, and he's just like, I'm going to do this because this is my friendship or the story. Cause this is basically the stakes of this story now. 
getting caught by right. the Zodiac and the story not going and them no longer being on the front foot as it's accelerating and maybe losing exclusive is, is how all those people feel in those moments, I think. And, and, and that's really special, but what we haven't done yet, which we have to do is let people oh, actually shoot, listen course. to the minute. I fuck. Yeah, man. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, cool. Well, all right. You guys listen to the minute. We'll be back. We'll be, we'll be back with your hosts, Blake Howard and Liam Billingham. Do you know when you expect him back? No, sir. I believe he's left for the evening. If you'd like to leave a message... Oh, could you hold, please? Hi, this is Carl. I'm sorry to disturb you now, but we're going with the story that Holden was the fifth man in control of the fun, and they're hassling us here. we got three confirmations, but if you could just help us, I'd appreciate it. Look, I won't say anything about Holden, not ever. I understand that we wouldn't want you to do that. We know it's against the law for you to say anything. If there's some way you could warn us to hold on the story, we'd appreciate it. I'd really like to help you, but I can't. Look... I'm going to count to 10, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to 10. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to 10, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm going to start counting. Okay? Are we all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Nine. Keep keep it going. Keep playing it. <laughs> just keep playing it. Just keep playing it. Let's just, just give, watch it together. Just give me the rest of the movie, and that's what I want. Mainline it into my veins. One thing you said before that we haven't circled back on yet, but I will, is just like, can't get enough of Hoffman in this movie, nor can I, but particularly because this is a moment where, I mean, their conflicting styles artistic Mm -hmm. actorly styles are so on show and with Redford it's about the internal pot boiler like he's literally bursting at the seams but he's a classical Mm -hmm. actor in that sense the method of Hoffman repeating sentences repeating okay is that okay we've got it right yeah and then the confusion of yeah yeah okay yep yeah we've got it right yep and the the repetition of the lines and to sort of underscore that panic and what's even more hilarious is that people you know when you count and you count slowly, you actually count probably pretty much in time with a second by second. Usually if people are just instinctively counting one to 10, they count super fast. But in this particular scene, Hoffman is counting so glacially. He's not going one, two, three, four. He's going one, two. And it's like almost two seconds are the gaps because we don't get the final 10. There's like 20 seconds to go when he starts counting basically or about 15 seconds to go. And so we only just tip past nine, 10 is essentially on the cusp of the right. next minute. And so I just love the repetition and the urgency. And then the, like the deliberate way that he has to slow it down so that he doesn't miss it. I'm going to count really slow to make it, to give him a chance. But if he's going to hang up, I can hear him uh-huh. hang up before I get to 10. And it's just, yeah. All of his choices and all of that motivation, all of his panic, and then the actual, the task at hand, really, really great. You know, what's even more incredible to me about contextualizing it that way is the fact that the film generates tension in counting fucking numbers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, in the same way that a line like, there aren't many basements in Southern California, California. or, uh, or, you know, 
Michael Keaton answering the phone at the end of Spotlight and saying Spotlight and me like every goosebump in my body <laughs> lighting on fire. Like it's a weird internal rhythm thing. Like Hoffman seems to be very, very as an actor, I think like one of the things that makes him extraordinary is his ability to be in touch with the material that he's doing. I mean, mm. I think that like the most obvious example of that is like the graduate where it's like, this is clearly a guy who knows what the tone is, what the humor is, how he's supposed to live in that moment and exist. But it's also kind of unbelievable to think that he did The Graduate and only a couple of years later does this part. And there's such like different... He's so in touch with with the material as an actor. And I feel like Pakula... Is there a greater... I mean, I, I to all credit to his casting director, whose name I don't know, but is there a greater caster of actors in the 70s than Pakula in terms of understanding how to use the natural gifts of an actor or run them contrary to what you think they're going to be because I recently watched for the first time the parallax view and you I was would like have, you, your head would have exploded <laughs> you can watch in your eyes fuck yes. like um Beatty in that film is just hmm. like it's never the image of Warren Beatty that I have. Like, I just think of him as the, like, you know, the sort of, like, bumbling but, like, really principled character that he plays in Reds. Or, I mean, I think for most people, Dick Tracy, our age, Dick Tracy is the is the model, right? And so to sort of watch him go back and sort or of... Or as a great guest of this show, Sean Burns said, his performance in Shampoo as a sex god. And Sean yeah. Burns coined the phrase, write about what you know. Write about what you know, Blake. <laughs> and I said... It's a Hall of Famer <laughs> quote from the show up in lives from Sean. Right about what you know. I yeah. mean, it's an accurate... Oh, yeah, that's the thing that we all forget about him. But he's just this like... Actually, maybe we don't forget it. I feel like he was the first person that my mother... My mother would like confess to like carnal, carnal, you know, attitudes in my life in front of me. One was Warren Beatty and the other was Michael Douglas. Like, I can't talk to my mom about Michael Douglas. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Oh, God. But, he to come back to this bit Hoffman he sort of as you said he decelerates the energy because again he understands that he has to make as an actor how do you make someone hanging up on a phone suspenseful he controls the rhythm he dictate dictates how we feel in that moment yeah and so to be like one two three four five because he knows that we as an audience only have a man standing in a badly lit newsroom to understand the drama inherent in the scene. Like, it's just, I don't want this whole podcast to be like, fuck, this movie's good, but <laughs> fuck, this movie's good. This this whole podcast is that. Yeah, that's that's, true. A, that's the deep dives that we do is, it, but it's also unpacking that. I mean, you, you just touched on it. It's that old sort of Hitchcock adage of show the audience the bomb under the table before you explode it. And he's literally, yeah. this is a, this is a one man show audio version of that. I'm going to count to 10 and you're going to hang up. And if you hang up, that means the story's not confirmed, but if you're on the line at the end of the 10, okay, 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 cool. That is all of that is a very verbal and oral way of establishing the shot. Now we have to count down to the bomb. Is it going to be a bombshell that says mm. they're wrong or is they, are they going to be right? And what's scarier? Right now, it's that mm. they're wrong because then the three other sources that they've spoken to are wrong, which is fearful. And what we then get in the trail of the next moments is it 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 goes into the next part of what we're talking about, which is 
once he actually is still there and does confirm that it is right, they're emboldened to take the story. And and then he has to, the great thing is he goes and explains it to Redford in the next minute. But I just said, if I can't stand it, you get it. And it's just this ferocious, yeah. like, if I can't stand it, you can do it. Yeah, okay, cool. And then they run to Bradley and they make the, you know, they're both convinced that it's been confirmed, but it's, man, that, that waiting for the bomb to explode, especially the gaps between eight, nine and 10. It's like, they're like, you could fly a plane through them because ultimately he's really going, if he, if I don't, if he's still there when this is done, then one of the biggest stories we know, we're ever going to write. We know everything. Yeah, we know well, a know, lot. It brings me back to, like, <laughs> it brings me back. Like, there's this David Mamet book called True and False. Have you read, do you know that book? I do know that book. I read it a long time it's ago. So, so, you know, when you read that book, and I read it in drama school, it's, it was kind of, you know, we'd spent a couple of years studying Konstantin Stanislavski. We studied Meisner, and it was all this, like, motivation and knowing your... <laughs> knowing your why you're in the scene and that mammoth book is just like you have an objective you say the <laughs> lines shut the fuck up and it was really you know it was a book about acting but the kind of quiet subtitle was a book about acting in parens in david mammoth plays essentially is like what it should have been but what is really interesting about around the scenes that that are here is that they really do have a quality of being very pure in terms of Hoffman and Redford walk into a scene, whether it's the scene a few minutes earlier where they go to the guy's house, whose wife has just had the baby, which is a beautiful moment when he goes, Oh, you have a baby. Congratulations. Congratulations. But it's almost like, of course this didn't happen because it's a scripted film, but I wonder if Pakula was like, okay, you guys need to get this information. Here's, you know, three pages of dialogue. Let's see what happens. Like I, I, it's so well acted that you wonder if a little bit if that Pakula was like, let's try some tactics that aren't in the script. Well, well Liam, if, for example, well, don't Liam. confirm, don't unconfirm. Yes, please. I can't tell you how I know this because I won't reveal my sources. But okay. I can Deep tell you. Calm it down. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you that Pakula rehearsed the script with his actors. And they took Goldman's script to those rehearsals and they didn't wholesale change things, but if they found a line change or an mm. alteration or a, a, a change that needed to be expanded upon in the script, he would take the script home and like they'd, they'd make the adjustments on it or whatever the case may be. They would do the slight tweaks from Goldman's script and that, which is ultimately keeping Goldman's script, but just, you know, a line change here or there or whatever, or a space or a pause or a enunciation or whatever. And then right. they would, they would get the actors to rehearse it in that way. Um, but then when he was on set, he did like to then basically go for what that rehearsal scene became. So it might not, it might start as something and end as something. Mm. And then he would do it like that. I have also been told from a source, which will be revealed in time, in due course, that Dustin Hoffman, oh that Dustin Hoffman was not necessarily faithful to that. Uh, as in Hoffman may not have always said on book, even when they had rehearsed it and it had been different. He was still of that style of like in the moment, in the scene, on the set, finding something else. You know, I mean, I guess Hoffman was a theater actor before being a, a film actor like you know whereas i think redford just came on i mean well redford was born everyone was like <laughs> oh cool most beautiful man alive it's like um and i i as i understand it didn't do as much theater and you can sort of see it in their their 
the the tension between their acting styles, which I think makes the film. Yeah, right? makes so you've got Redford, who, by the book, kind of like the character, sort of knows how to operate in these worlds, smart, suave, knows how to talk to a witness. I don't, I don't know how much of a um, of a stretch it was for him to do that. Whereas <laughs> Hoffman is this constant moving around anxious presence trying to figure things out and i can imagine dustin i mean from what i know of dustin hoffman as an actor yeah i could just see him being there and being like why why do it like that why don't i try this why don't i try that and that i could see robert redford being like let's just i just want to do the scene and go just, home yeah, can we just do and, and, and that's the tension imagine performing not only to a guy whose style is so different to yours but it's also he's the producer hey dustin oh, you got true. three more takes Bro, I've got, this is all know, I've got. So this is a question. Do you know much about how Bakulish, I mean, there's not a lot of like coverage in, in any of these scenes, but does Bakulish shoot? I mean, do you know anything about his like shooting ratios or if he shot more, or he shot less? Cause it doesn't seem like a heavily covered movie. It seems like Bakulish. I mean, when you have the team that he had for this movie, you don't shoot a lot. of coverage, Extremely deliberate setups. I love it. Often love with it. Willis himself commanding the camera. And Bakula behind the camera, watching it unfold and very um, meditatively sitting in the scene, letting his people do their thing. And then he would go up and coach his actors into their performance and then being there and watching them deliver the scene. Mm. Like he was a guy who really trusted his elements. Like he, he, you know, I, I think you said at the beginning, the freaking cast on this thing, like having this many people who are this good at their job almost guarantees your success. And similarly behind the camera, having the confidence to go, okay, cool. I've got a William, I have a William Goldman script. I have, uh, I've got costume by Bernie Pollock. Who's the costume um, supervisor who, you know, is famous in his own right as a costume and designer. I, I have Gordon Willis that's doing the camera and I have, George Jenkins and George Gaines, the guys who both collectively won Oscars for set decoration and production design on this movie. Like they're doing their thing. I'm in this space. I'm setting up these huge anamorphic lenses. I'm in these spaces and he's just the guy like that's, I think that that's and and, and, a, and a phenomenal way with actors is what I've heard basically. Yeah, like totally. A, a complete alchemical guy who was like, if I just have all the ingredients in place, then the magic will happen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's a generation of, of of filmmakers who like, I don't tend to get to feel super, super nostalgic about this stuff, partially because I didn't live in it, but also because obviously the, the flip side of when you watch these movies is you're like, well, certainly, <laughs> certainly a lot of white dudes involved with this production. <laughs> but like the fact that these guys were kind of like, when I think of Pakula, I put them in the same realm with Arthur Penn, um, yeah. with Friedkin, like these guys who just new it's not that they there's there's this attitude that's like oh they're all auteurs they know everything no it's that they they had a command of every aspect of filmmaking like arthur penn was a theater director you know friedkin was a documentarian i know less about pakula's background but they had been in touch with some aspect of like photographing like with theater you're in a room engaged well, with people making a thing why people don't talk as much about the cooler in the same reverential tones as maybe a pen or or a um mm-hmm. or, or a freak and as an as, as the two examples you gave is 
this was a guy who came up through the Hollywood system. He was a production designer. He'd been a That's producer. Right. And it was only later as he sort of aged into the, the director's chair and had this really innate appreciation as someone who'd been producing movies of of the team that you create to produce films. And it's all about, it's all those things. And I think even, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's all those things. And in my mind, it's one of the things that later on is apparent, which is a script is really important to him, but it's almost, it, it is as important as the team that is around him. So, you know, some of his best films do have very dynamite scripts yeah. and they're great, but they're very cinematic undertakings and they have tone and they have mood and they, and they have feeling even around the script. And that, so that's why like a great script gets elevated to something that is, you know, completely masterful and, a, and, a, and something that's a bit grubby or trashy can absolutely be elevated in the way that he shoots it and the way that he conducts it, because that's just who he is and that's how, mm. how he operates. But, but he's, he's a very erudite, like if you check out interviews, I always recommend people to check him out on YouTube and he's a very erudite, like very softly spoken, sophisticated dude. He's not a, he's yeah. not, he's not John Milius. He's not carrying around a gun <laughs> and wearing a cowboy hat, you know, like, wasted, right? Like, yeah, yeah, like he's he's just a sophisticated guy who goes home to his wife every night and he wears suits. He's like almost like you know when Tom Ford directed like two movies and looked better on set than the actors that he was directing. Like that's kind of he's got big Pakula energy. Like you know, you wear a three piece suit and he'd sit in his chair and he'd um, extremely deliberate in how he was conducting himself and how he wanted the movie to look and feel and and even you know, from what I understand uh, from John Borson, who was a great guest on the show in episode 75, 76, um, cause we cheated with John cause he's actually Alan's assistant on the film. Um, but John, John talked about Alan shooting with an almost with an editorial head too. Like he'd shoot yeah. the scenes and he'd shoot all the coverage that he needed and he'd get what he wanted. And then, so the assembly cut of the movie, if it got too, if it got shaved too finely or they tried to burst the energy, it didn't work because he, he shot it with the right air in each of the scenes. So it had to be very deliberately edited together to make it work. So again, a, a, a strange kind guy. Of like, that kind of like surgical precision, I feel like you only find among now a certain class of, of filmmaker. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the obvious example is David Fincher of a guy that, but then again, also shoots a take 500 times or whatever. You know, you hear these crazy <laughs> a stories. thousand times. A thousand. There's a, there's a, something in IndieWire this week that was gold. <laughs> Gary Oldman being forced to do a take in Mank exclamation point. I like to call it Mank. Um, <laughs> and I think Fincher, like they were rolling on their 108th take and Gary Oldman finally turned to him and was like, David, I've done this 107 fucking times. And I can just, if there's one person who could probably withstand the wrath of Gary Oldman, it's David Fincher being like, I don't care, do it again. You know, <laughs> like, you know, that sort of like surgical precision to filmmaking that you see uh, people who only shoot for the edit, you know, like kind of the classics. Um, John Huston, these guys who really knew what to do with oh, the camera. Polanski, uh, you know, I revisit Chinatown. Far too often, me too. Far too, far too often for me to be comfortable. Um, and I watched it recently with my sister-in-law, who was in Boston. I was in LA, and she'd never seen it. And to watch that movie with anyone, and to realize, like, Jesus Christ, so much of this movie is like, like my favorite scene in that movie is when Houston sits down with Nicholson, and they're eating fish, and he's like, "Are you sleeping with her?" And Nicholson gets up. That whole scene is a single take. 
<laughs> like it's just the precision, the way these guys knew how to make movies so that it couldn't be taken from them in post. <laughs> yes. It's kind of unbelievable you know, to me. And and that's such a Houston thing. You're gonna take this movie from me. <laughs> My cold dead hands. <laughs> they just you know, and it's like that generation of guys, you know, like you and I share a common interest in a sort of a sort of maleness that permeates in movies. And there's something about these group of dudes from the 70s, from the 40s and the 50s and 60s, where you're like, who's your top three to get absolutely wasted with? Uh, and it's like, you know, John, John Houston's Houston. on that list. For me. Johnny but we'd probably <laughs> die. He would be 80 years old and we would die. And um, that is the way to go. That's the yeah, way no, I want to go. <laughs> So so, how did you arrive at the pearly gates? How'd you get here, John Houston? They're like, oh, oh yeah. okay, yeah. There's you're a not line the over there. There's a line. <laughs> get in the John Houston wasted line. It's gonna it's gonna be a while, but you have the time. The next one is Oliver Reed. Oh my goodness. But I think I think to your point. Oh my god, that <laughs> and Russell Crowe, but he's still alive. <laughs> but to your point, I also feel like these guys knew when they were making movies. You know, a thinker like Pakula is that a script is just a blueprint to get somewhere else. And yeah. I think Hoffman knew that. And yeah. I think, you know, to me, it's like so many of these guys treated a take the way it should be treated, which is like somewhat religiously. The camera is rolling. We are doing the thing. And, you know, the digital film argument is really, to me, very, very boring. You shoot with the medium that you have, you know, control over. But you or the medium that you can afford which is digital right but it feels to me like there's a reverence for the time between when you when you when you when you start rolling and when you cut and that but that reverence isn't say all the lines right that reverence isn't hit your marks that reverence is do make something come alive and that's where i think film comes closest to theater where it's like you have actors that know my responsibility in this moment is to fuck everything that I've said before and make the thing come alive. There's this really great other acting. But how hard, oh, before you get to that one, sorry, I just want to quickly jump in. No, please. How hard is it to do that when you are slavishly adhering to fact that they are making things alive and also dancing on the knife's edge of this is factual. Like that is what is, the even right. greater degree of difficulty that like films like the social network and this and spotlight do, which is you are making a really rivet, you're, yeah. you're in, you know, and I would, and I would even put social network and all the presidents on a, on a, on another, on another tier of like level of quality from an overarching cinematic sort of holistic cinematic uh, right. experience is how are you skating in the lines of what is fact and is verifiable and will absolutely take people out of the movie. If you F around with it at all, yeah. And well, to your that. point also, and we talked about this a little bit back in episode 42. <laughs> Please check it out. Um, <laughs> the fact that it's not like we are, when you watch Zodiac, you're dealing with something that's 40 years ago mm-hmm. or and to, to when it was made. This movie is dealing with stuff that happened just previous everyone knew what the story was like it's almost as close to like like i often wonder if 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 this well fuck this is happening now to a way worse degree but like if you're dealing with presidential indiscretion i'm gonna cry presidential indiscretion in in this contemporary moment like all the president's men would probably be a weekly podcast because the speed at which they turn this thing around to me is 
unbelievable considering it's a movie with a script written by arguably the greatest screenwriter writer of all time um liam on this show you've spent i know you've you 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 know that this show particularly week by week there have been times where i've spoken to guests and even with your good self and george where i am talking to someone and there's a huge shopping in the news which is completely reframing how someone is experiencing the text week by week minute by minute and I post right. something on a Friday and for like a day or two later. And I think, wow, that that's going to last. And I literally get to Saturday mid morning and the world is different. There has been another Watergate level, all consuming news item that the current administration in the United States just overtakes some like total landscaping like the total landscaping or like just you name it people going back through and excavating each of the news items that pop up in this show and it's outlandish and you just go wow that's crazy and even you know uh on an upcoming episode i won't tell you which the great bill gabiria returns to all the president's minutes and he goes wait am i recording this before or after the election and it was actually before and he goes, wow, I might need to like call you and just give like a coda because of like how I'm feeling might be completely different, you know, the results of the election. And it's just one of those crazy things where you, I, I'm, I'm posting three to four episodes a week in this thing to finish this project in a year. And I, I still feel like I'm behind if I listen back. I'm like, what? How many years ago was that? Oh no, it was only a week and a half ago that that happened. It's funny that you say that because we released an episode um, yesterday on I Live in Fear. Yes. And George made a joke. Um, that was funny for George. About <laughs> um, It's really mean because he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> about the uh, last debate. And I cut it out because I was like, it's partially because that's the tone of the show. We're not, I mean, we are to sometimes. We spent a whole episode complaining about Howard Schultz running for president that doesn't play quite as well as it used to. But I cut it out because I was like, it's too, it's like, it's going to bring people out of the moment. It's going to bring people back to this place where it's like, yeah. oh, that last debate. Whereas like the world is, I mean, first of all, that motherfucker is going to be president <laughs> anymore. But um, fascist nightmare pancake face. Um, but it's it's a really delicate balance. And, and I think that like to come back to this film, you know, there's like this slow, methodical, investigative journalism that of course the speed of news was not what the speed of news is now but it's almost like a i would never deem to i'm not a journalist but and i would never you know but i would almost think that i understand why this this book this text this film is so important to journalism because like it's kind of a great lesson in like being meditative and ignoring the noise or lack of the noise. noise and going like what's the fucking story um and needing independent verification and knowing you can't go until you have a thing and having to use language and having to manipulate around the edges and say to yourself, like, okay, listen, I know you can't tell me what you know, but <laughs> I'm going to count to 10 very slowly. And if you don't hang up, like just the fact that that was, it's, I mean, and it, if it's, you it's don't hang like up, lesson. if you don't hang up, like, can you imagine, like, the stress, like yeah. the stress. Yeah. And it, it's also just that so much of the stories now are so much more stupid. And yes. I don't mean to degrade some of the really terrible 
things that have are continuing to happen under you know baby hitler but the fucking the the the, <laughs> the fact that they gave a news conference and a a total oh landscaping before seasons total landscaping is like it's the gift that keeps on giving like i jokingly was like i want a 10 episode hbo max documentary series just on that morning just on because that morning. i need to like cackle with the fact that they didn't book the four some intern booked the wrong place or whatever the case was but it, it just feels like the importance of this movie is that it shows two people hard at work to do a thing that means a lot and even earlier this year like bob woodward got in some shit because there was the interview that came out that you know that that implied that Trump knew how serious coronavirus was, but he, it's not like he leaked it because the work that he was doing was the work that Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein did, which is slow, methodical, give you a bigger picture. Whereas the, understandably, everyone's on the jump wanting to get news out because it's the news is literally can save lives at this moment. I don't know if it is, but that's the idea of what it's trying to do. So to watch this film recreate the... Pr- the process of solving this stuff is just like it's 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 really it it doesn't feel aged but it feels like an important representation of a moment in history that still feels quite contemporary i don't think we're ever going to get away from how important this text is as a reminder and it's like For you sure. know and um and i think the trump and team have taken um if you don't know your history you're doomed to repeat it um uh to the wrong lens because later on we'll see Mr. Ziegler and the rhetoric that he spouts when the story takes a right-hand turn. And it basically feels like his crazy folk that are sitting on news conferences right now, shaking bits of paper and then being completely unverified uh, nonsense. It's, it's a crazy time, but you know what? I've had a crazy good time talking to you about it. Liam Billingham, thank you so much for being a part. My friend again, you're amazing. I'm looking forward to talking to you about Zodiac very soon our next project oh, i gotta i gotta i gotta my god i guess i gotta watch it 10 more times <laughs> tonight i've like there, there was like um i keep a diary for the guys on our patreon and i and 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 i occasionally then update a letterbox with like what things i watch and the stupid thing is i can't ever log the amount of times i actually watch all the president's men or like a new project like zodiac because i watch them in like 30 minute increments almost daily like and so this thing is like yeah. Uh, I, like cumulatively, how many times you've watched it? I couldn't tell you. I would need like a scientist to give me an app to show me how many times I actually viewed the, the thing in its entirety. But yeah, I, I, I'm like, I'm neck deep in lots of different what, segments of that at the moment. I know that we have to, we're going to wrap up, but what do you think it is about these? I mean, I know these movies are really good, obviously, mm. but what's the, what is it about news or, um, journalists hunting down a story that is so for me i think for me spotlight is really personal because i grew up in boston i grew up irish catholic Mm. i grew up with family that had maybe too close of a connection to the church like it's a big part of my like cultural background so when i watched that movie i like i instantly recognized that it is the greatest khaki boston (laughs) boston some some of the the great boston really good boston clothes right um same thing with Zodiac for me it was like it's the kind of like existential detective detective drama thing but 
like I, I just uh, what is it about these movies that keep us coming back is it because there's a feeling that like they did hard work and that's what we all want to do and the work led to something it's so hard to there but i could watch them obsessively like nothing else i don't know the, the only thing i would say is purpose yeah it means something yeah what they're doing means something and in the face of overwhelming uh you know, overwhelming impulses from all those external forces to squash what you're doing, this undeniable impulse that you have a purpose that is important and that what you're working on is important. And that's really reassuring. Like, you know, I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. in 2020 are reflecting on what they do. And it's like this great existential moment of like, you know, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing right now? And if you have a, you're in a position where you, you know, you lose your job or whatever, you know, because of it's the fucking year of, 2020 um a lot of people who are then going back to think about what they're doing next are not in the same field it is not doing the same thing it is not a job that you are away from your family for 10 hours a day you know eight hours of work in two hours of commuting it is it is thinking about what do i actually want in this life and i think that there is a you know i think we can all have a great deal of affinity for groups of people who have a purpose and a desire to do good um and to Mm -hmm. tell the truth and to hold things to account and for justice there's like that that purpose and justice and so few people in like our contemporary settings get to have a a work day where they make them feel good they go home and they feel good and and it's not just like the Mm. result it's the work these are great movies about working yes and working tirelessly yeah and also like the work is the reward. You know, yeah, Zodiac the work is, is the by reward. far the most pessimistic version of this <laughs> because it's, you know, it's the three lives essentially destroyed. But um, the fact that it, like, you know, there's something about the ending of Zodiac ending, I'm sorry, the spotlight ending with them answering phones yeah. as opposed to like, you know, there's the big moment where it's like, I need you all back here on Monday rested and everyone shows up on Sunday. And it's like that feeling of um, the work that you did is, is really, really significant. And I think that like, that seems to be a recurring theme on your series of podcasts where in heat, you know, they're, those guys are defined by what they do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some cases, one of them wants to get out, but it's like that feeling of like, this is who I am. I can't separate my, my working life from my personal identity, Liam, which is, I told you I was never going back. <laughs> What are you reading? Book about medals. <laughs> the greatest meat cute of all time in cinema. I will hear nothing else. Lady, why are you interested in who I am and <laughs> what, what I, I do? do? The best <laughs> the best response to a woman of all time. Hey, what's your name, lady? What do you care what I am or what I do? Uh, very good. Very good. Very good. I know my De Niro impression is out of control. It's, it's very good. <laughs> Boston khakis, bad De Niro's. We've got to get out of here. Thank you again. You're the best. I appreciate you. My friend, it was a pleasure. Uh, We'll talk more soon. Liam is absolutely the best. Liam G. Billingham is where you can find him on Twitter. All one word, at Liam G. Billingham. His incredible podcast with George Fragopoulos is Uber Busters. O-E-U-V-R-E Busters is where you can find it. Um, I was lucky enough to be a peer uh, on this season of their Kurosawa and Mifune work talking about Seven Samurai. Not pressured at all to talk about one of the greatest movies that's ever existed and definitely a movie that could be unpacked frame by frame. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Liam for being a part of the show today. Thank uh, everyone um, for the journey so far. It's been two hours. Wow. Um, In this movie, it, it has flown by. 
at ATPM Pod is where you can find us on Twitter, at One Blake Minute on Twitter and Instagram for myself, One Heat Minute dot com is where you can find everything about the show and about all the productions that we do we'll catch you on another episode oh my goodness so so very soon a double episode dropping today with another guest jedi s keep listening